I want to talk to you about Jesus, the great upsetter. We often hear of Jesus, the comforter, which he is. Jesus, the redeemer, which he is. Jesus, the forgiver of our sins, which he is. Jesus is also the world's great upsetter. Because he knew that the world was not going to get upright until it was first upset, until it was literally turned on its head to begin to see things from God's perspective and not just ours. Jesus upset people. He had people that were angry with him, so angry that they finally put him on a cross. And succinctly stated they were angry with him because he said what God wants is your love, not just obeying his law. God wants you to love him with all of your heart, your mind, your soul, your strength, and love one another as you love yourself. He went around forgiving everybody, and that made some folks mad because they couldn't forgive those people. They were not like them, not the same race, not the same color, not the same background, not the same moral standards. So early in his ministry, Jesus had great crowds, but toward the end they began to dwindle away and they upset her because they were being upset by Jesus, the great upsetter. The same thing happened for his followers. When Paul went to Philippi to preach the gospel, well, when he went on any missionary journey, he spent half of his time in hot water and the rest of it in jail. He went to Philippi and preached, helped people, forgave people, changed people's lives, saved people, led people to know Christ as love and not just as law, and as a result, he and Silas got thrown into jail, beaten, whipped. Let out of prison, they went down the magnificent Roman road to Thessalonica, one of the great Greek cities of the world, one of the great merchant cities of the world. And uh, when they got there and started preaching, why, it, it caused a riot. A uh, bunch of the religious folks got together and said, and you read it in the, seventh, in the 17th chapter of the book of Acts, in the 6th verse, these that have turned the world upside down have come here now, have come here also. One of the accusations made against Jesus in the Pilate's court just before he was crucified. You read about it in the 23rd chapter of the Gospel of Luke, 5th verse. He stirs up the people. He makes people think. He makes people see past tradition, the truth. He tries to force people to open their eyes and change their ways. Get rid of him. He's upsetting us. As someone has said, Jesus came to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. And so have his followers across the years been called to do the same. Comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. We need to hear from the Word of God and from the people of God and through the Spirit of God that we are to be upset over our lethargic indifference. God would upset us 
without comfortable consciences. God would upset us because of our moral indifference. God would upset us because we serve ourselves. God would upset us because we put things before him and others. He would upset us because of our pride, our prejudice. Now it is important to remember that the only people who creatively, now that's a very important word, the only people who creatively upset people are those who love those they upset. The only people that creatively, not negatively or destructively, the only people who creatively upset people do so because they love them, care about them. Too often the church upsets those that it dislikes, that it despises. Not so with the people of God and the leaders of God, the prophets and patriarchs and Jesus and the apostles and the ministry of Paul and others. Listen to the prophets. Well, they greatly upset the people of God because they kept calling them back. Why will you die? Why will you die? Why do you worship idols? Why do you not see that God does not want sacrifice? He wants love. Why don't you see that? They were imprisoned and they were beaten and the weeping prophet Jeremiah crying out to them. Why did the prophets preach that? Why did the prophets say that? Because they cared about those people. They were their people. Jesus upset people. Why? Because he loved them. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. How I would have gathered you together as a hen gathers her chickens, but you wouldn't. Now your house is left to you desolate. You can hear his heart breaking. And hear the Apostle Paul saying, I would consider myself accursed for my Jewish brothers. I would consider going to hell if it would save my Jewish brothers. That's how much he cared for them. And here they beat him and whip him and imprison him. Because he cared. We too are called to be healers, truth tellers, at times upsetters. Now I can realize, I do know from experiences, I know most of you do, if not all of you do, that healing can be a very painful experience sometimes. Physical, emotional, mental, whatever it might be. It can be very painful. 
drastic. Surgical measures sometimes need to be taken, and as a result, there's pain involved. I've had major surgery. I've had a bad automobile accident in the hospital for weeks, even a couple of months. Had months and months of therapy. That's painful. Many of you have been through a lot worse than that. That was the road to health. That's the road, the road to wholeness. Jesus tried to save people from resistance to the light. You know, when you've had your eyes closed a long time, been asleep, and suddenly the light comes on, and you open your eyes, and at first it hurts, and you close them up again? That light hurts at first. When God's Word comes to us at first, we hide our eyes from it. It begins to probe our hearts. It begins to reach down into the depths of our spirit until we close our eyes to it. When we keep our eyes open, then health will come, and healing will come, and sight will come. Plato said, I can understand why children are afraid of the dark. What I can't understand is why adults are afraid of the light. I'll tell you why they're afraid of the light. It hurts to see ourselves as God sees us. It's a painful experience, but out of that comes healing. Cleansing, forgiving. The followers of Jesus Christ and the predecessors and the prophets upset people's values, and God's proclaimers today need to do the same thing, to upset people's values. We've got them all upside down. Our definition of success is how much you can get, how much you can keep, how much you can hold on to. Modern definition of success is accumulation, not giving, not serving. Now, I can understand that. There's nothing wrong with that desire. If you want to make all you can, as John Wesley said, make all you can so you can save all you can so you can give all you can. But most of us stop with the first. Just make all you can. I remember way back 50 years ago when I was uh, trying to decide what direction God was leading me. I remember reading a book that uh, I'm sure is probably out of print by now, but it's a book. I know the man's last name. I can't remember his first name. Some of you here may maybe be able to help me on that. It was a book by a man named Betcher. I believe it's spelled B-O-E-T-T-C-H-E-R, something like that. And the title of the book was How I Raised Myself from Failure to Success in Selling. Did any of you remember reading or hearing that? There were one or two hands. Good. We were on the ark together, too, weren't we? Uh, <laughs> He was one of those men way back in the uh, late 40s and early 50s. He was one of the first members of what was then uh, a member of the Million Dollar Roundtable. I'm sure there are hundreds of people that are part of that now. But uh, it's an excellent book, and I still remember some things about it. I also read uh, uh, Napoleon Hill's books, The Laws of Success. That's okay. That's fine. That's wonderful. And that was the mood of the times. But now we need to move so the next move, and that is, as Bob Buford says in his marvelous book that I would recommend to everyone entitled title Halftime, we need to move from success to significance. From success to significance. I 
I used this phrase last week. A number of people commented about it, and I want to use it again so I can remember it and hope you will as well. To ask you a question, are you frustrated over unsatisfying success? Are you frustrated over unsatisfying success? You're successful in so many ways. Materially, physically, family, home. Is there still an emptiness inside of you? I alluded to the rich young ruler last week. I do the same thing again. Let me read you his story, 10th chapter of Mark. And as he, Jesus, was setting out on a journey, a man ran up to him and knelt before him and began asking him, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why, why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. He said to him, Teacher, I have kept all these from my youth up. And looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him and said to him, One thing you lack. Go and sell all you possess and give to the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But at those words, his face fell. And he went away grieved, for he was one who owned much property. No, he was one who was owned by much property. He was suffocating himself to death with things. My goodness, he had everything we would call successful today. He had youth, he had money, he had power, and he had morals, ethics. I mean, this is Mr. Good Guy. This is Mr. Success Personified. Upright, upstanding, moral, ethical, religious, keeping all the commandments, money, youth, influence. Think of all that young man could have done for the cause of Christ if he'd followed the Lord. With attributes and talents and abilities like that, think what God could do with a young person like that. Think what God could do with some of you young people. You have some of those same abilities. You can make a lot of money. You can be famous. You can be powerful. You can be ethical and moral and good. What if, what if you give all of that drive, that desire, that impetus to Jesus Christ? Think of the difference the world would be had that young man given his heart and his life to Christ. We might have five Gospels instead of just four. We have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We might have the Gospel of someone whose name we don't even know because when you read this story, we don't even hear his name. He's only known by his outward accomplishments, not by the inward person that he was. Jesus came to upset us because of our mistaken concept of values, what's important in life and in eternity. It says he left grieved. He went away grieved for he was one who owned much property. Grieved. I want to come back to that word in a moment. The prophets, Jesus and the apostles, Paul and the other apostles, 
upset people over the issue of how to be right with God. Does not every one of us in this room want to be right with God? Don't we want to be right with God? Well, the world's idea of how to get right with God is religion. Now, there's nothing wrong with religion when it's an expression of an experience. When it's attempt, an attempt to get one, that's something else. When we feel that by accomplishing certain moral good deeds, we have earned God's blessing and forgiveness, we're off on the wrong track. And people who get on that wrong track and get hooked on that wrong track, when someone comes along and says, no, you're saved by grace and by faith alone, then there is resistance there. They are upset over that. They're working hard at this business of getting to heaven. And if, if anybody could have made it to heaven on their good works, Paul would have done it. If anybody would have qualified, to spend eternity with God because of his good works, it was the Apostle Paul before he was converted. Before he was converted. Listen to what he says about himself. Third chapter of Philippians. If anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more than they. Circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. But whatever things were gained to me, all of that stuff, good though it was, all of that I count loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ. Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and do count them but rubbish, garbage. The literal word is dung. Count it as dung that I might gain Christ and be found in him in this person, not having a righteousness of my own delivered, learned, purchased from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. We are saved by faith. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, Paul writes, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Jesus has come and the world has been upset ever since because he has said the only way to salvation is by faith and trust in me as Lord and Savior. And when you put your faith and trust in me, you have my grace that's greater than all of your sin. You are forgiven. You are forgiven. Some of you remember my using an illustration from one of my authors I enjoy reading named Robert Farrar Capon. I don't remember which book it was in, but it was about, he used an analogy of an infallible fire department. It was a marvelous illustration of God's forgiveness, God's grace. This fellow owned a, a paint store. 
he owned a paint store, and the paint store caught on fire. He didn't take very good care of his products there. He wasn't living up to all the requirements of the fire code. He got indifferent, and his, his business burned down. When the building caught on fire, they called the fire department. By the time they got there, the place was almost in ruins. They tried to save what they could, but it was just ashes. But the fire department showed up and put out the fire. But the fire department didn't rebuild the house. The fire department didn't immediately restore all of the loss of his goods and his property. They were gone. So they came in. They said, now, Mr. Smith, you're going to have to do this and do this. Let me help you. Let me guide you. Let me help you build a better building. Let me help you build better insulation. Let me help you know how to take care of your materials in a safer way so that this won't happen again. Let me help you to do that. Well, he thought he could do it on his own, so he didn't bother with this outside help. And so what happens? The place catches on fire again. Call the fire department. Here comes the fire department, the infallible fire department, which means that that fire department, however many times that building is going to burn to the ground, that fire department is going, that fire department is going to show up infallibly. Without fail, they're going to show up to put out the fire. But they're not going to put out the anguish and the disappointment and the loss created by the fire in your life or in your business. Now what are you saying here is that every time we call upon the Lord and ask Him to forgive us of our sins, He forgives us of all of our sins. Infallibly, without fail, the fire department of God's grace comes up and pours the cool water of life on the burning ashes of our hearts and lives. But you don't get the house back or the building back. That's going to take time and that's going to take effort. That's going to take some direction. That's going to take some construction, some rebuilding, some healing. And if you ignore it, begin to take things for granted, it can burn to the ground again. Fire department will show up. God will forgive you an infinite number of times for whatever sin you commit. But he does not remove the consequences of that sin. God forbid, if I get drunk and run a stop sign and hit a family in the car and kill the members of that family, my, I'd come and I'd say, oh, God, I'd get on my face. Oh, God, forgive me for my sin of intemperance. Oh, God, forgive me for my indifference. Forgive me for my loss of self-control. Forgive me for killing those people. And God will forgive me. He will forgive me the guilt of what I've done, but he doesn't bring that family back to life. They're dead. Those consequences remain, which is why God wants to come and insulate our lives against those potentials for burning down our lives. Why God wants to come through His Spirit, through the direction of His Word and the ministry of His church to give people the kind of strength that those devastating fires will not come and destroy a life, a witness, an influence. He will forgive all of your sins. But he wants to let the experience of forgiveness change our behavior. Now, there's a very important verse of Scripture in the second book that Paul wrote to, to the church at Corinth, 2 Corinthians 7th chapter. 
Tenth verse. This is very important. If you have a Bible, note it. If not, write it down. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. Now this is powerful truth. Godly sorrow, the King James translates it, godly sorrow worketh repentance. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God, or godly sorrow, produces repentance. And that word means change. Produces a change without regret. Now what does that mean? Moffat translates it, the pain God is allowed to guide. The pain that God is allowed to guide. Worldly grief is unrelated to God. So that's why people call it bad luck, tough break. The world's grief, unrelated to God, is just looked upon as bad luck. But godly grief, grief born of the Spirit of God and the conviction of the Spirit of God can be used for a spiritual result that will produce a change in life that leads to salvation. God becomes a partner in the painful process of reconstruction. Renewal, restoration, rejuvenation. Godly sorrow brings about change. Some of you remember the story I've told. I'll briefly recount it for those of you who have not heard it. The story of my brother and myself when we were young. I was about 10 or 12 at the time. We were throwing the baseball in the house, and my mother had told us time and time and time and time again, Boys, I'm telling you, do not throw the baseball in the house. Do not throw the baseball in the house. We ignored it. We took it for granted. We'd heard it so often, we thought it didn't count any longer. We got in the living room. I threw the baseball. My brother missed it because I threw it so poorly. It hit my mother's favorite antique, broke that beautiful antique vase into a thousand pieces. I knew that I shouldn't have been throwing the ball in the house. I knew my mother had warned me. But I did it anyway. And I expected her to show up when she heard that vase break because she was right in the next room in the kitchen fixing an evening meal. She didn't come in the room. I thought she'd be there with a cat of nine tails or a Chinese rack or anything. I would take anything. My, my mother would not have done that. She was not that kind of person. I just felt that's what I deserved. That's what I did deserve. I'd willfully disobeyed her and I'd broken her choice antique. So I walked into the kitchen. Some of you have heard the story, and I'll recount it quickly. I walked into the kitchen. She had her back toward me. She was standing at the sink looking out the kitchen window. When I walked in the door, she didn't even turn around and look at me. And I stood there for what seemed like an eternity. And then I said, Mother, I'm really sorry. I broke your vase. turned around and looked at me and smiled. 
a smile. Not a word. No cat of nine tails. No rack. Just a smile. Turned back around, went back to work. And I remember vividly, as vividly as if it were yesterday, because it was the first time in my life I began to understand the power of forgiveness, the power of unconditional love. I walked out of the kitchen, and my brother Bob said, Buckner, what happened? And I said, Bob, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. But I want to tell you something. You couldn't pay me to carry a baseball in the house again. Godly conviction had brought about a change of attitude. And I was far from perfect the rest of my life, but I tell you, I didn't carry a baseball in the house. Now, what if I'd walked out of there and run into Bob? And say, he said, what happened, Buckner? <laughs> My goodness, mother just smiled like that. make a difference to her. <laughs> we can go in there tomorrow and throw the ball again. Mother doesn't care. She smiled. It's okay. Do what you want to do. Break the vase. Break your heart. Break your life. He smiled. To have that attitude, can you, can you imagine having that attitude after you've been forgiven? Can you imagine being forgiven and take that forgiveness as license rather than repentance? Change? That's why David wrote this marvelous 19th Psalm. He's a man who knew what he was talking about when it came to sin. Forgiveness. Beginning in the ninth verse, the judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them thy servant is warned. In keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? The question, the prayer then, acquit me of my hidden fault. Oh God, I pray that for me. Acquit me of hidden faults. Also, here it comes. Keep back thy servant from presumptuous sins. Translated some translations, willful, intentional sins, having been forgiven, having known the grace of God, having known the power of God's love to presume upon the grace of God. How despicable. Keep me, O God, from presumptuous sins. Let them not rule over me. Then I shall be blameless. 
Let me pause there and say a word about blameless. The difference between blameless and faultless or sinless. doesn't say, then shall I be perfect. Then I shall be sinless. I shall be faultless. No. It says, then I shall be blameless. Best way to illustrate it I know is to take a child who's has a wonderful artistic talent and he or she can paint beautiful paintings for seven-year-olds or five-year-olds. And all of our grandchildren are artists. And their artwork is all over our refrigerator. If you want to come by and see the exhibition of the Fanning's grandchildren's artwork, come to our house. It's magnificent. Some of them are done when they're three years old and others when they're five years old and others when they're six or seven. And it's wonderful. It's not perfect. It's not faultless. But it is blameless. It's the best they can do with the capacity they have at that time and with the talent and insight that they have and the dedication that they have, they do their very best. Now, suppose one of them grows up to be a viva satsara. Ah, what, a, what an artist. My soul, I just stand in amazement every time I look at a piece of his art. This native of Spain who could just paint the most magnificent skies and clouds. He has yet to paint a perfect painting. He has yet to paint a faultless painting. He will look at every one of them and say, I could have done that a little better. I could have changed that. And then the next one I will do this. But at the time he painted that, at the time that he painted that, he was blameless. He was interpreting it as fully as he knew how. And that's what God calls us to be, is to do the best we can with the light we have. And the difference between our blamelessness and perfection is the grace of God. He makes up the difference. But we are to continue to grow. We're not to continue drawing pictures as though we're five years old. We're not to continue living morally as though we were 15 years old. We're to be growing in grace. And we can be blameless. We'll never be faultless and never be sinless, but the grace of God will promote within us the desire to paint the perfect picture of life. And for that to happen, he turns us upside down. So we get a proper view of himself, of himself, of God, and of ourselves. He stands us on our head. So we'll begin to see things God's way. My favorite painter is Caravaggio, an Italian painter. In a little Catholic chapel in Rome, two paintings of his hang diagonally opposite one another in a little chapel. One is the conversion of Paul and the other is the crucifixion of Simon Peter. And both of them, their heads are upside down. Paul said, uh, Peter said he wanted to be crucified with his head upside down as was his Lord because he didn't feel worthy to be crucified as Jesus was. And there he is upside down on a cross. And immediately opposite, on the opposite wall facing him is, is Paul you can see that he's gone blind because the light has flashed and his eyes are just like glass and he's falling off of the, the horse and the horse 
is falling backwards and Paul is upside down. Peter is upside down. Because you and I are never going to be upright until we are upset, convicted, converted, repenting, and growing in grace and in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus. And that's why David concludes this psalm. Listen to this. Keep back thy servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not rule over me. Then I shall be blameless now. And I shall be acquitted of great transgression. Judgment and reconciliation are at the heart of the gospel. They go together. Whether we believe in judgment now or hereafter or both, God wants us to be reunited with Him, to be rejoined with Him, to be restored to Him, that we might be made whole and happy, forgiven forever. Our closing statement we will never be upright, but always upset until we've been made right with God through grace and forgiveness and growth. And Jesus has invited everybody to come to him whosoever will. You may have killed people as David did. You may have presided over the death of Christians as Paul did. Making a difference what it is in your life. May not be anything so despicable or heinous as that. Maybe an attitude of hatred or anger, bitterness that you carried through the years. God convicts you of that. Not to hurt you, but to heal you. Not to make life painful for you, but to bring you to repentance. And out of repentance, the glorious salvation of Christ and the transformation that comes when you know your sins have been forgiven. Have your sins been forgiven? Have you asked him? Has he convicted you? Is he doing that now? Is he convicting you down inside to trust him as your Savior? I invite you on behalf of Christ to come follow him. Just as Jesus asked the rich young ruler, come follow me, he asks you to do the same thing today. To come trust him as your Savior. To come join his fellowship. To come be a part of his church. If not this church, at least some church where you can worship and serve and grow with other Christians. God is impressing you to come rededicate your life. Recommit your life to him. You may want to come and kneel and pray as people often do without saying a word to me. You don't have to talk to me. You may want to just come and kneel and talk to God and go back to your seat. You feel something down underneath your left shirt pocket disturbing you right now? That's not a sermon. That's not Buckner. I've not told some sad deathbed stories to manipulate your emotions. If you're feeling something inside right now, that's God. And all I can do is stand here and urge you 
to do what God's leading you to do. Make the decision now that God would have you to make privately and if then publicly he impresses you to do it. Come, as many did, and do Sunday by Sunday. The Spirit of God leading you? Come on. I'll be here to welcome you and greet you. Don't put it off. First verse, first note, take the first step in this direction. Quietly, prayerfully, we stand and sing.